Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian rugby union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian rugby union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant, and welcome to episode 29. Today is an episode that I've been building up to for a while now and it's probably the most important one I've done so far. Through the course of this journey, I've spoken to many people about the issues that the game faces in Australia. The pressures on the community game, the competitiveness of other codes, and the problems with governance that restrict the administrators, and in some cases, cause further division between groups in the rugby community. But I want to get back to what this podcast is about, and ask the most basic questions that I set out to answer when I started this journey. Why? Why has Australian rugby gone backwards in popularity in the last two decades? Why have the Wallabies gotten progressively worse since being world champions? Why have our super rugby teams been unable to perform collectively? Why can a country that can still nurture and produce top world-class players like Matt Gittow, Kurtley Beale, David Pocock, Quade Cooper, just to name a few, still be unable to have consistency as a rugby playing nation. And perhaps the biggest question of all, why can the Wallabies not win a Bledisloe Cup after they won it five times in a row from 1998 to 2002? Now, I did a lot of research for this project, and I tried to speak to as many people as I could in order to get the most rounded perspective on what had happened at the top professional level with the Wallabies, but also what was problematic at all the other levels, right down to community rugby. I've been privileged to speak both on and off the record to some very astute rugby minds and people who I believe possess great IP, as they call it, that could help resurrect Australian rugby. However, at the very top of that list, by a country mile, sits one man and one company that I believe have the most accurate, evidence-based and astoundingly unique argument for why Australian rugby has gone backwards. When I was in pre-production on the documentary in late 2019, I'd found some article written by former Wallaby Ben Darwin outlining how sporting success could be measured. There were some very interesting observations around the behaviour of players and the influence of coaches. It felt like Ben would be an interesting person to talk to for both you know, his first-hand experience as a Wallaby, but also for the work he was now doing in sports analytics. When I called him, just to introduce myself, what I thought would be a five-minute chat to organise an interview turned into a close to 45-minute discussion in which he put forward to me a very short but at the same time complex summary of why Australian rugby was in the predicament it was. It was an explanation I'd never 
heard or, or thought of, and I knew that it was going to be worth the time to dig a little deeper with him. It wasn't until I travelled to Sydney that I was able to briefly meet Ben at the International Rugby Academy of Australia event out at Homebush. I was there to interview former All Black Murray Maxted, but again, I found myself having another fairly detailed discussion about Ben's work with him and how it related to Australian rugby. But when you're on a journey for the truth and someone throws you a couple of clues, you don't politely accept them, take them away and dwell on them. You follow that train of thought. You grab it with both hands and you chase it down and you see where it takes you. And that's exactly what I did here. Within a couple of weeks, I'd flown down to Melbourne to see Ben and talk further with him. This episode is part one of what I would say is probably the most critical component of this whole journey. It will be complex and there will be parts where you might need to pause for thought or even question the logic or even question yourself. But that's fine because that is exactly how I experienced it. Welcome to episode 28, The C Word, part one. This interview occurred in early 2020 in Melbourne. It was before COVID and lockdowns, and in fact, happened just after the Melbourne Rebels had beaten the New South Wales Waratahs on a Friday night at Amy Stadium. I met with Ben at the game for a beer and was introduced to his business partner, Simon Strawn. Simon, despite being from South Australia, also has a rugby background, having been both a coach and then a performance analyst for the Wallabies and Melbourne Rebels. Ben and Simon have a small little office in the outskirts of Melbourne. It's quiet and unassuming, with the odd bit of Star Wars paraphernalia scattered around. To start off, could you tell us a bit about your rugby playing career from, I guess, a junior all the way up to the the top level? Um, Quite short. Um, I started off as an eight-year-old playing because my brother did, um, but slightly different shape to my brother. Um, Played prop as a kid and ended up at my school, Barker College, um, playing through the juniors. Um, When I was 15, my parents separated and I thought I'd like to give it a bit of a crack. So I threw myself into my rugby, decided I wanted to play for Australia, set my goal and, and basically went about doing that over sort of an eight-year basis. I guess going back to that, what was the, at the time, and this is 2001 that you made your debut, but you know, going back to that period of the late 90s and the lead up to when you first made it into, the, I guess, the professional league, what was the pathway to play professional rugby in Australia? So I, I was, um, I, I had to make a junior representation, so I made Aussie under-21s. It was the first time I played <clears throat> for Australia. And then it was a case of most of those guys got contracted within about two years. There was three professional sides in Australia. There was also Sydney clubs, which were semi-professional. And basically a, cl- a club would come and find you. You play for the club. You play well for the club. You get contracted. I was contracted to the Brumbies after doing a tour in 97, contracted at the start of 1999. Made my debut in uh, 99, broke my arm in three minutes, uh, tackling Jonah Lomu. <laughs> um, and then uh, made my sort of uh, repeated debut through 2001. I was in the starting team and then made the Wallabies the same year. So to, to talk us through, that that first game was um, against the Lions. It was the first game of the Lions series. Um, I guess, you know, t- 
talk me through how it felt to play for, for Australia finally, but also in probably you know one of the more kind of hardest uh, Wallaby uh, game environments yeah, you'd, you'd walk into. What was shocking about that game, or what was surprising to us all, was we came out, it was at the Gabba, it's only 38,000, I think it held at that point, but probably 26,000 of it was British Irish Lions supporters who were all in the red, and we'd seen thousands of them in the streets of Brisbane. Most of us weren't aware of what was coming, and we ran out with this sea of noise just coming at us. We went, wow, is this a home game or an away game? Australian rugby sort of woke off the back of that and started dressing people in gold. Um, and so that, that stunned our guys and they came out a million miles an hour and just kind of blew us away. And, and, um, but it was, a, it was definitely an amazing way to start test football. I thought every test was like that after that. How did it feel though finally to you know, play for your country, um, wearing the jersey, seeing the national anthem, all, you know, all that sort of it, stuff? It's, it's, um, I was actually very nervous. I told my mum I'd wink at her, but I didn't realise the camera was here. And so as soon as the camera came to me, I winked at the camera and I was like, oh, you dickhead. So I didn't realise uh, how silly I looked. Um, but some, I, I wasn't ready to play test football. I'd, I'd literally been playing Super Rugby for, for nine months. Um, I'd basically shot straight into the starting team for the Brumbies. Through that, went with everybody else into the Wallabies. Um, I didn't get comfortable till 03. So, and I was sort of on the bench most of the time. So sometimes you're ready for stuff, sometimes you're not. Why did you think that you were not ready enough? Oh, I mean, the, the thing about playing prop is you're basically wrestling your dad as an eight-year-old. And when you're 22, 23, I think I was maybe 24 when I played my first test, I was physically getting, you know, beaten up a few times. The only way to get any good is to get physically beaten up. And um, it just took a while to get... And I wasn't also ready for the pace, ready for the kind of emotional scenarios around, you know, being intimidated, people trying to intimidate you. It came with time. Super rugby, I was more comfortable in about a year. But test rugby took a while. Um, and also it was just, a, it's just hard getting feedback's hard, you know, very direct feedback from a guy like Eddie Jones could be pretty hard. I was always interested in the Brumbies who seemed to have a star studded group of players. I never played as a prop. So Ben probably wasn't one of the players I most remember being interested in. If I'm being honest, it was George Smith and Andrew Walker, but I certainly remember what happened to Ben in that fateful world cup semi-final in 2003. Spencer again, intercepted, Mortlock, they are going to make hard work of it, Rokotoko's chasing, but he can give up, Mortlock gets the first try, Williams arrives, is it a collapse ball? Big push by New Zealand, that scrum, but there's an injury has been occurred, it looks like it might be to one of the Australian front rowers, we can't see exactly who it is, but Al Baxter warming up on the sideline. Not too sure I'm seeing who it is. I think it might be Ben Darwin. He's gone down and he's been caught in an awkward position when that scrum wheel turned and collapsed to the ground. That semi-final would be the last game of rugby union that Ben would ever play. The collapsed scrum resulted in a prolapsed disc in his back that was touching his spinal cord. During the game, he had lost all feeling in his arms and legs has publicly credited All Black Keys Muse for possibly saving his life by not pushing further in the scrum. It was, it's always difficult retiring. The best part about getting injured is no one tells you you're not wanted anymore. You know, when a lot of guys retire, 
they're told you're not going to be contracted here anymore. I, I improved dramatically in retirement because people retrospectively were so nice about it. They say, you know, Australian rugby misses you, all this sort of stuff. It's complete rubbish. There's no evidence it's the case, but it's always very nice that people respond in that way. Um, so that was the good part about it. The second part is I was not ready for it at all. And I, th I think about it in terms of like, um, uh, it might sound strange, grief is like skiing. You lose a ski, but you don't take the pounding till sometimes you get further down the hill. For me, I, I got injured. I didn't deal with it for about another year or so. So I kind of had a difficult time, but it was about 12 months later that I basically had to crash, come off the skis, walk back up the hill, get stuff fixed. So, you know, um, in talking to guys who get injured, the first couple of months are actually really easy because everyone's being so kind, everyone's looking after you. It's then in the quieter moments when you're like, okay, now what am I gonna do? That you don't start to figure it out. And that took a long time to figure out what I wanted to do and figure out who I was. So what did you do after that? So the easiest one is media and coaching. So I got into media, started doing a little bit of Fox Sports, started coaching in my club, thought I could coach, uh, learned pretty quickly I couldn't coach, and then by some miracle picked up a job at the Western Force under John Mitchell as the Fords coach. So now I was a 28-year-old coaching some guys who were 32, 33 years of age, which was also kind of a difficult dynamic. Spent a year there, decided it wasn't for me, sort of had a bit of difficulties with depression, anxiety, came back, spent a year renovating my house, got back into coaching again, went to Japan and started coaching, loved that, spent four or five years coaching. So my retirement was 03, started coaching five, left the four six, Japan eight, was there in Japan through to 10, came back, started help, did data analytics at my team in Japan, went back to the uh, Melbourne Rebels, got married, got, got divorced first, then got married, um, and then um, came back to Melbourne, involved with the Rebels for a couple of years. They went, they ran into some financial difficulties. I headed over to Japan again for a year, came back after that, and the team I had in Japan, I coached. The team went undefeated, but I was fired at the end, so I'm like, coaching's not for me. <laughs> seems, seems to be that, um, and part of this was the research, in a way, I didn't know it at the time, but it was the research around you know, the work I'm doing now around causes and impact of coaching and things like that. So um, I came back and what do you do when you don't have a job? You start a consulting business. So I started a consulting business, which was this one in 2013. It was interesting chatting to Ben and how he was forced early into retirement and into a post-career path at the age of 27, something many professional players wouldn't necessarily be considering till well into their 30s. Most of the responses you talk to guys is if you is if you extend yourself into what you're good at, it's coaching and media, which is rare, difficult, and often not very well paid, and very schizophrenic. If you're an assistant coach, you're at the whim of the board, you're at the whim of the head coach. You can come and go, you end up bouncing throughout the world. You have no element of control. It's quite, it's quite stressful. The second, the second is you then jump into your different job. The hard part with most guys is they're then 15 years behind their mates who are now at banks and then now, you know, the CFO and they're starting off with a teller. So even though it's being a wallaby helps, most of the guys study, but don't put everything into it. And then they finish at 34, you know, having to jump in. And we all kind of want to have the 100 game career and make a ton of money, but it's not the reality for most people. Most people don't play a lot of games. They jump around teams. It ends in a whimper somewhere in Japan or in French second division. You come home, you start to sort your stuff out and 
most guys struggle, a lot of guys get divorced, um, and then eventually they settle down and, and lead the normal life. And it starts on a, you know, it always, your career always starts on a field out the back of nowhere, and it ends on a field out the back of nowhere with your kids. I'm talking to Ben inside one of the small rooms at his company, Gainline Analytics. His business partner, Simon, and another employee are working away in the next room. There is a whiteboard and the odd photograph hanging up, but it's otherwise as pretty nondescript of an office you can get. So the, the business came about, first of all, out of necessity. I've got I had two kids coming out of Japan. I've now got four. I had to find a way to, to start a business. That business ended up being very simple in the early stages. They started by deciding to create a database that tracked rugby player contract periods at professional rugby union competitions all around the world. Tried to figure out what to do with the business. We're actually selling data to overseas clubs. We're just telling them which players are off contract. We built this database, about 15,000 players, and we were just running it. And, we, and the club would say, tell us who's off contract. And we'd say, here's all the flankers off contract around the world, we believe. So that, that, was, a, um, that was the original idea. In doing that, in then looking at clubs, we started to see patterns. Patterns around the way they were formed, then patterns about how countries were formed, how the teams were doing. And one of the things was the way they were constructed was having a massive impact on the team. So that we started to do some research into this area, then it kind of flowed from there. It was those patterns that they started to see that would form the basis of their initial research and what would become the foundation for how Gameline Analytics could examine the cohesion of a rugby club. Most of it actually comes down to, from a club perspective, is are you a buy, are you a build? And if you're a buy, your club's going to act in certain ways, your player's going to act in certain ways, they're going to do certain things. If you're a build, it gives you a different set of outcomes. The concept of a sporting club that buys talent versus one that builds talent can probably be seen across countless examples in all sports. And in Ben's case, they'd started this examination through looking at the number of and regularity of player contracts made by different rugby clubs. Their focus was centred around how much contractual stability a club actually had, and it became a metric they started to value. So contractual stability is a term, but it's one of, you know, we started off with one number, then we went to 10, now we're at five, 500, we're about to go to 5,000, we'll end up with sort of, you know, maybe 10,000 per game around these kind of ideas, which is around understanding between players, experience, understanding of your role, understanding of system. And we just could have, we call it cohesion analytics, but it's basically about the level of understanding either between each other of your system, of, of your role, um, of the way the coach wants you to play. And you can measure that, which you can, then you can actually start to see what a team is gonna do, how it's gonna go, how it's gonna play, what the outcomes are gonna be. Um, we've, when we first started off, we were just looking at, 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 at players' history. That, that seemed to be having a bit of an impact. Were they always at this club? Were they somewhere else? We started looking at positions. We started looking at, for example, certain positions are harder to transfer between. Certain positions are harder to transfer between clubs. I think the first thing to understand is that most people are looking on the wrong, as we put it, the wrong side of the coin. So most of the time they're looking at the outcomes they're looking at what's taking place on the field, the line breaks, the scrums, but they're all outcomes. What I'm interested in the cause part, what is causing teams to play well, 
you know, you can get data that tell you the Crusaders are winning, but the why is a really important part. What's different about Christchurch? Do they produce good players? It's funny because it's not a very big place. The Canterbury Crusaders are the most successful professional rugby union club in the Southern Hemisphere. And while it hasn't been tested, it would be fair to say that they would be one of the best clubs in the world should they ever get the opportunity to play the best teams in Europe. It's a club that has consistently produced All Blacks since professionalism. But it's a curious thing, because as Ben said, with a population of around 600,000 people in the region, really isn't that big a place to be as successful as the club has been. If we take it that the idea that the very stable clubs develop talent faster, Crusaders will turn a normal kid into an all-black, you know, Carter, who was not as good as Brendan McCullum at school, McCullum was ahead of him for New Zealand secondary schools, goes to the Crusaders, goes to Canterbury, flies through the system, becomes who he becomes, replaces Andrew Mertens, and then becomes a, you know, a great player. You know, he was accelerated. The success of the Crusaders is something that I know has often puzzled many rugby fans outside of New Zealand. We've all heard the same comments. Oh, there's something in the water. Rugby's just in their blood. They breed them different down there. Comments like the latter always amuse me. It's as if a small group of parents within the same postcode just somehow managed to be rugby fertile at the same time. This is current Canterbury Crusaders head coach Scott Robertson during an interview for the 101.4 Rugby Show back in 2019. kind of monster, you, monster Crusaders had it. This, it's kind not just cookies. mental toughness, but there's something that's a different way of looking at this sport. Because it, it just seems to come it's, out of this that, club. Yeah. That's his area of expertise. Yeah. It's, it's, it's team cohesion. It's actually it's a term called teamwork index, which um, the amount of times people have played together. Um, so, for example, I use a context here. You've got, so Mitch Drummond come through with Richie Mawanga, or Richie Mawanga coming through with a Ryan Crotty, and then Ryan Crotty playing with Jack Goodyear. So... They've all played with each other along the way. So when the young Mitch Drummond and um, Richie played all their age group together, came through the New Zealand 20s, which I coached. Um, they came through from our own academy, so all their language, all their structure, um, all their training um, was done together. So you, one guy will give him a wink and you understand what he meant. Yeah. We didn't even need to say anything. So they had a lot of combinations. So the teamwork index and the amount of time you played together not just on the field, but, you know, we're trained off the field now as well. And then you go to test rugby, the next level becomes innate, the, the understanding. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. You, you end up understanding how the person reacts and what they need. Yeah. So it's, it's teamwork. And that's why, you know, over a long period of time, if, you've, if, if you keep a consistent retention in your, in your group, and a lot of them come from with the locals, uh, Munster, so they care about the team foremost, they come through your structure and they've played together for long periods of time. So when under pressure, you, you've got a massive amount of trust and understanding. The Teamwork Index, or TWI, that Robertson is referring to, is a metric that was created and trademarked by, that's right, Gainline Analytics, Ben and Simon's company. Most of our research, we couldn't find things on rugby. So we went to stockbroking, military, HR, um, hospital data, you know, surgery crews, unstable surgery crews, less effective, airline flight crews, 
we sucked up all the research we could find and we applied it to sport and we just found it was quite predictive, particularly in the long term. We look at teams in you know, games and then years and then decades. And so you you have a metric called TWI. Can you tell us a bit about that? How I guess it's follow on from what you've been discussing, but um, give us a bit more of an explanation about what that is. Yeah, I think the first thing is it's it's basically are you a buyer or build, and it reflects that as just a percentage. So Crusaders number one, Melbourne Storms number one, Leinster in their competition is number one. Um, in the basketball, it was the San Antonio Spurs, um, Manchester United under Ferguson. The mention of the Melbourne Storm is interesting. Much like the Crusaders, the Storm have been the most successful and consistent team in rugby league, putting aside their salary cap controversy of the 2000s. Unlike the Crusaders, they are based in one of Australia's biggest cities of Melbourne. However, as we all know, that is and always will be an Aussie rules town. Yet the Storm thrive in a rugby league environment that is virtually non-existent in comparison to the heartlands of New South Wales and Queensland. And it's within the Melbourne Storm's most successful period that an unusual case study in exceptionally high levels of TWI is illustrated, in particular involving three players, Cameron Smith, Billy Slater and Cooper Cronk. One of the favourite scenarios for me around this research is, is these three guys, and I think the main thing that people always talk about is how they were destined to be who they were. But once you dig into their stories a little bit more, it becomes reasonably obvious they were never destined to be the way they were at all. So Kronk was a rugby union player that Matty John said, you know, he's, he's struggling with the adaptation to rugby league. Billy Slater came down to Brisbane North, you know, from stables. I think he dropped, got dropped from his touch footy team um, for his stables. And then, and then Cameron Smith was a, was a good young player working in a printing factory. They weren't picked up by the Broncos. They got picked up by, by um, Melbourne Storm in the Brisbane North team, and, and Inglis was also part of this group. The player Ben is referring to is, of course, Greg Inglis. They then eventually came down to Melbourne. They produced something pretty extraordinary, but none of the other clubs really looked at them. Um, I believe their starting wage was about $5,000. So they came down to be part of this, this group, and then that became part of the spine for the Melbourne Storm the most cohesive spine in the history of the game and, and you know the way that they would talk about Cameron Smith just stepping off his left foot and Cronk would already know the line that he had to take, Slater would know where to go and so as, the, as, they were, as they had that time together they were able to develop the detail, really really finite detail, how am I going to hold the ball. Good shot from Pete's, but look at Melbourne again, the old firm, the old firm Smith, Slater, Cronk. The solicitors, the conveyances. Smith, Slater and Kronk. What a magic combination. What a try. When Slater, Kronk and Smith had their first season together in 2004, the Storm were coming out of a slump in performance. Under coach Craig Bellamy, they would go on to make finals just about every year. They would win multiple premierships and feature a number of state of origin and kangaroo stars. What's relevant is that for most of this period, Cameron Smith and Cooper Cronk played hooker and scrum half respectively, two playmaking positions in rugby league that are critical for a team to play well. Well, 
Charlotte So Street guys again, and we hear them so often in, in the Melbourne Storm. Cameron Smith, as we see a marker, not quite square there, and Pete pops out and finds a Billy Slater, which is always trailing up the middle. And who else? But Cooper Crocker finish it off. This is a TV interview Channel 9 did as a promo for the State of Origin series with the three Queenslanders together. In the interview, the trio are also joined by Jonathan Thurston, another all-star rugby league player who played with Cameron Smith when they were teenagers in a Brisbane representative team. You know, obviously, Cooper, Cameron and myself, I all come through the Brisbane North days. I think we were 17 when we first met. Yeah, we go back a bit further than that, Gus. We, uh, we've known each other since um, we were little fellas. Played, uh, played a lot of junior footy against each other and um, we played in a couple of uh, Brisbane representative sides um, together. Um, John was playing, he was playing 5'8", I was 5'8 at the time too, but I got relegated to the bench. <laughs> if you listen to them talking about the game, it's just thousands and thousands of hours without adaptation, without having to deal with constant churn all the time when your coaches, is just working on getting better and better and better. Do you know what each other's thinking at all times on the field? I mean, is the combination that strong, you know exactly where you're going, what you're doing? I think, I think there is time though, Gus, that you can sort of sense when, like I know he wants the ball, or I know what sort of play that Cooper's going to be thinking of taking to the defensive line. And I certainly know, you know, Billy, he reads off our body language of, he can sort of pick when I'm going to run the footy, whether Cooper's going to go to the out and give an inside ball, you know, whether JT's going to do his show and go, you know, he pops up on the inside. So I think because we've been lucky enough to play so long together, you know, you sort of get that read of, might be just a subtle look, and you know that what's going to happen. And that's, that's something that we're fairly lucky to have in this footy side that, you know, there's four blokes in key positions that can, you know, know what each other's going to do and all that. And they obviously then became the spine for Queensland and the Queensland team with a massive amount of understanding between players that the Cowboys, Storm, Broncos dominated state of origin. When they took the field, they were generally three to four times as cohesive as New South Wales even though New South Wales had more access to more talent. But they had to be, Queensland had to be more cohesive than New South Wales in order to win this series. As soon as they dropped below that, they would lose. What's interesting about this period of Queensland dominance against New South Wales in the Rugby League State of Origin series is that while these Melbourne Storm stars and their boyhood Queensland mates are thrashing New South Wales, New South Wales are coached by the otherwise successful Melbourne Storm coach, Craig Bellamy. This was something Ben Darwin was able to discuss with Bellamy a few years back when he had a chance to talk to him. What's interesting is they actually end up coming against their old coach who has the second worst record in the history of State of Origin. Now if you just took his record of State of Origin you would think he's a bad coach but we know what he does at Melbourne Storm and so people then reasonably understand that he was up against something and um, in talking to him, he said, this makes so much more sense for me about why I couldn't get New South Wales to win. There was never enough time. There was never enough time to get New South Wales onto the same page. Three kids, just a, you know, two of us from Brizzy, one bloke from North Queensland, to, to come and play at an under-19s um, footy side, and then you know, to go play first grade together, you know, to play State of Origin together, it's, it's quite amazing. And then, on the other hand, you know, this bloke I've known since I was a little fella, you know, playing in, in representative footy then, you know, thinking that we're going to be you know, sort of partners in, in the state of origin side, you never would have picked it. Isn't an amazing coincidence that three immortals were all at the same club at Brisbane North all at the same time? The statistical chances of that are one in a billion, one in two billion, 
it, you could not make it happen and yet it did and everyone else overlooked it. So for me, that, that I think is a reasonable signal that it's not necessarily about taking skill and keeping it together, is that maybe the togetherness is creating the skill because they can work on it and work on it and work on it together and then they improve over time and become who they become. I know this is meant to be a podcast about rugby union, so let's move away from league for now. But what's interesting about this notion of the Melbourne Storm and their Queensland connection is that the notion of people growing and developing together to become successful can also be applied outside of sports. You know, I think like so many of the world's bands grew up together, went to school together. So I always think it's this amazing coincidence that Bono and Ed were in school together, Rolling Stones were in school together. They had lots of shared experience, but it doesn't statistically make sense that they would actually be you know, the, the two best musicians on earth were on the same bus, like, you know, George Harrison and, and um, uh, Paul, Paul uh, McCartney. Paul McCartney, John yeah. Lennon. Uh, no, well, they were, they were at a music festival. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, George Harrison was at a, on the same bus, traveling on the same bus every morning with him. Yeah. You know, Rolling Stones were in kindergarten together. Uh, Pick Floyd, I think, were university students in the same course. It, it sort of doesn't make sense that the greatest musicians in the world should happen to be all so close proximity to one another. So the thing that kept going through my mind was everybody feels that to be successful you take skill and keep it together. Maybe it's the keeping together that's making the skill. And so that's actually what we found. It's actually the opposite. And so we went and mapped. We started off with about nine, now we're at about 25 different sports. Went back about 30 years and just tried to find patterns, what's common, what's also different. So for example, ice skating and pairs figure skating, very different. So, so um, ice dancing and pairs figure skating. Ice dancing, no one's ever swapped partners and won a gold medal since 1956 or a world championship. Whereas pairs, which is more throwing and stuff like that, you can do it in about four years. Now they're constantly dealing with changing programs, you know, changing songs. But the more stable a group is, the more they can adapt to the, to the change, the better they tend to do. Before we get right into You didn't expect to jump to pairs figure skating, did you? No. <laughs> I certainly did not. In fact, there were many things Ben threw at me that I didn't expect. The challenge of keeping players together does seem to be an uphill battle in most professional sports. Rugby union is no different. The premier competitions in England and France alone are renowned for wealthy owners throwing cash around to poach the best players from other clubs. And indeed, after a team improves or a player makes a national team, the player's market value will increase which will frustrate a club's capacity to retain them and be, as Ben would say, contractually stable. If somebody's willing to pay enough money to buy talent, they can outrun cohesion in the short term. You're not economically sustainable, but you can, you can, you can buy a win. You know, if you can keep a team together for, say, two years, at the end of that, you should be able to buy a win. But the problem with that is it has a set of ramifications. We talk about you can buy a title and destroy a club at the same time. In rugby circles, I feel that there are numerous examples of clubs that have had one or two good seasons before falling away, almost just as quick as they rose. Very few, if any, seem to have that consistency or high TWI that a club like the Crusaders has. So if you have a stable environment, if you're not constantly chopping and changing, people will improve. They get that 10,000 hours. What you don't want to do is spending the 10,000 hours adjusting to a new system, to a new people, to a new program. 
because all you're doing is you're learning and unlearning, learning and unlearning. And so the stable clubs produce masses of great players out of good players and the unstable clubs will take good players, you know, really good draft picks that everyone wants. But for those players, it's hard for them to progress because all they say is like, when is the change going to stop? I've had nine different head coaches in 12 years. You know, I just feel like I'm keep on reinventing the wheel every year. I've had a player say that to me. Um, and it's why I say clubs, you know, players find it very hard to go to France and get better, mm. except maybe Clermont or Toulouse because most clubs in France are just, just buy, 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 you know, buy the answer. So having that scenario makes a lot more sense than the Crusaders just have an unbelievable amazing amount of amazing footballers coming out of Christchurch boys and Lincoln because you know they those those schools do well but there's a lot of other great schools in New Zealand but they seem to produce so many all blacks I, I was asking why the idea of players moving around and getting better or worse at a different club was something that interested me in an Australian rugby context I was always curious how some players did well at one club but then poor at another and vice versa Ben and his company had another turn of phrase for this. It was called the portability of talent. As we started to look at portability of talent, we realised one player at one place would produce great rugby, go to another place, not so much. Uh, Ma Nonu is a pretty good example of that. This is of course Ma Nonu, the 2015 World Cup winning All Black, who after making his debut for New Zealand in 2003, then had patches in his career where he was in and out of favour with the All Black selectors. During his career, he played for seven professional clubs around the world, including at four of the five New Zealand super franchises. Interestingly, the only club he didn't play with was the Crusaders. Wonderful at the Hurricanes, not great at the Highlanders, pretty good at the All Blacks, not great at Rico, not great at the Blues. So is it because he's not trying or is it because he's having difficulties and what would those difficulties be? So. When we then looked at this, not only from a club perspective, we started looking at it from a country perspective. But countries, they work very differently. They have resources. Sometimes they don't have a choice. So if you're a very small country, you don't have a choice of who you pick. You don't have a lot of people to pick from. So if we just take it from the first perspective of the numbers of players you have will generally tell you if you have good players or not. But there's other things at play around the way the clubs are built. But if you look, for example, the country that has the most people who play is England. They do very well in women's rugby and in the juniors. So you can basically say that England is good at rugby in terms of its individual constituents are quite good. And they have a lot of people playing. I think they have about a million, million and a half. Now Scotland has 60,000. If you take that, Scotland should never beat England, but sometimes they do. So what's the difference? So the first thing is, is trying to understand What are the resources at play? So the first is sheer talent. The next is coaching, infrastructure, your domestic system, the way in which a a country is built. Now we are getting closer to what I think is most pertinent in terms of the Wallabies and Australian rugby. Let's look at the countries that play rugby and try to understand what are their respective systems, their infrastructure, What gives them advantages, or conversely, what is their disadvantage? Take New Zealand. It's a small country, small population. 
but has a long history of playing rugby with no other code that competes and with minimal changes to their structure of their clubs and provinces for many decades. England, a nation with the largest player pool and the richest union, but it also has to vie with the attention for other sports in their market and has a club competition that runs independent of the RFU. South Africa, nothing but rugby, and with no shortage of registered players and participation that is growing. However, it has a struggling economy. Each country has an ecosystem that is unique and creates different circumstances influencing the performance of their national team. So as for Australia, we have clubs, then we have super rugby clubs on top of that. That dynamic has changed over the last 30 years. But not only have we changed, the system around us has changed, the other countries have changed. So when we talk about collective understanding, Australian rugby in its, in its 80s for a number of reasons and 90s was roughly 40-50% ahead of the rest of the world. And so how that manifests itself the most is in defence. You don't allow a lot of tries. In the World Cups in the 90s we allowed 8 tries. 99 when the starting team was on we never allowed in a single try. We basically defend very differently now statistically over the past 20 years to how we attack. We basically score about the same amount of points, maybe a little bit less than we used to, but we now let in a lot more points. And the correlation between that understanding is Wallabies now, they, they, you know, we used to score 19, 20, 21 points. We'd win 21, 12. Now we lose 21, 40, 21, 45. It's not, it's not always the same. So we started to see these dynamics driven off the back of these changes that were taking place and you can see them over a long period of time. We've lost that advantage for two reasons. One, we've gone backwards a little bit in terms of the cohesion of our national team, the cohesion of our clubs, and the rest of the world has caught up dramatically. They have restructured themselves. They have become more professional. I've been speaking to Ben for a few hours We've broken for coffee and had small, informal chats where he's repeated some of his previous points and answered a few follow-up questions that I had. But I was starting to see the pattern and something that had started off as a largely theoretical concept was quickly taking shape in very clear terms. For me, I can only describe it as a light bulb moment. But for Ben, it was obviously something that he had been slowly unravelling for a very long time. I guess the common the common refrain we have been hearing, certainly in Australia, is that everyone else is getting better. But I guess the question is, is are we still, are we going backwards or have we just not been getting better at all or as quick as everyone else? It depends on what they talk about when they're talking about getting better. I think the outcomes is other countries have improved. Statistically, you can see that and you can see that coming. We've been talking about this since 2013. That, that these changes as they continue to grow and other countries will you know, develop players. Argentina you know, might be a little bit of an example of that. Scotland have improved a lot over time. But these things are moving incrementally. It's only really when you look at it across 91, you know, we've gone back to the 82 to now, that you see these things happening in a pattern and then these patterns occurring off the back of other decisions. One of the things that basically we see a lot of is fanfare around a coach. This coach won here. He'll come in, he'll fix the problem. 
Robbie Deans was going to fix the problem. He's going to come in, he's going to fix it. He's won a lot. They come in, they can't do it. Every coach we've had since Rod has won a Super Rugby title. Knuckles prior with, with you know, Super 10s. But they weren't able to necessarily create a level of success that they required in order to be successful. And so every coach we've had since Rod McQueen has gotten worse. But my bone of contention would be, I don't necessarily know if each coach is a worse coach. I haven't really been coached by any of them since Eddie, so I don't know the answer to that. But it's statistically, that's an anomaly for the next coach to get worse. So therefore, what's happening is something else occurring. For most of the 20th century, the Australian national team, the Wallabies, consisted of chiefly two state or provincial teams, Queensland and New South Wales. This was in stark contrast to the other major rugby playing nations during that time. New Zealand had over 10 provincial teams in their national provincial competition, the NPC, prior to Super Rugby. South Africa and their Curry Cup had six teams, and before, like New Zealand, they would condense down into a smaller number of teams in Super Rugby in 1996. And up in the north, the British and Celtic nations, plus France, and even across the world in countries like Argentina, national teams were made up of the best players drawn from larger domestic club competitions. It was only Australia that soldiered on with all their best talent drawn from just these two representative teams in New South Wales and Queensland. Through the 80s, what it meant was, if you got into the Wallabies, you already had 12 teammates there, because there's only two teams to pick from. And they tended to pick them in pairs. You know, if you look at Horan and Little, they met when they were 12. It's a small pool sticking together. Eels and McCall were at the same club. Daly, Kearns, McKenzie, same club. So they were flowing from club into New South Wales. We also had some sort of reasonably dominant clubs in Australia, say four or five, Ramwick, you know, uh, Gordon, Brothers, Souths, UQ. So they were sort of pooling in these different places, again, which meant we defended well as a, as a nation. We went into the, um, into the national team and, and it had the same impact in a way as it does on rugby league in Australia. As you play for Australia, you're already playing with half your Queensland mates. One of the Wallaby teams that often stood out for me was that 1991 World Cup winning side. Over the years, I remember that the team seemed to be remembered not just for winning, but also for the tight bonds between players. Scrum half Nick Farr-Jones and fly half Michael Liner may have been opponents during New South Wales and Queensland matches, but they had been playing together for the Wallabies for seven years by that point ever since the famous Grand Slam winning tour of 1984. Was the combination like that of Far Jones and Liner a perfect partnership, just like Cameron Smith and Cooper Cronk had been at the Melbourne Storm? Imagine a rugby club that has a high measure of contractual stability. Players developed within the club system and environment from the youth level all the way through to the first 15. A club where players get regular exposure to high-quality rugby and are able to play alongside teammates with whom they share such a close affinity that they can preempt each other's movements, even with just a signal. This is precisely the foundation upon which the Crusaders in New Zealand are built on, and their success is plain for all to see. But there was briefly a time in Australia that an Australian team was built on similar foundations. And according to Gainline's metrics, 
once recorded the highest TWI of any club in the world. It was Ben's first club, the ACT Brumbies. You know, if you play together at a club, it's easier to go in. When I went into the Wallabies, there was already nine Brumbies there. That was easy for me. I've spoken about the Brumbies before in a previous episode called The Golden Geese. By now, it should be clear that what happened in Canberra wasn't just an accident. How does a sporting franchise in one of Australia's most least populated cities become one of the most successful clubs in the Southern Hemisphere, if not the world, within five years of its existence? A smaller group of players operating in a condensed, high-performance environment with the right coach, the right resources, and just seemingly at the right time. This is one of those first Brumbies, former Wallaby, Rod Kafer. The history of the Brumbies coming about in that first team, as you may know, I think there was a squad of 33 players, 17 of whom were from the Kookaburras. So you had this large number of players from the same environment, which, which plays to the point. We then brought in a number of players who actually, many who came from Randwick, I think there might have been out of the, the next 16 players, there may well have been six or seven players who came from the one club side. You know, Randwick was very much a, a real focus for the Brumbies and a lot of Randwick influence there through Ewan McKenzie primarily. Um, but strong connections there, of course, then Eddie Jones comes in 1998 and strengthens that tie in with Randwick as well. Um, and we just continued to build on the combination of those players coming in and the local players who were being developed through the, the Canberra competition. Let's go back to 1991 again. Right around that time the Wallabies won the World Cup in England. That starting team had nine New South Welshmen in it, four of whom played for the same Sydney club, Randwick, and all who had spent an entire year together building up through a New South Wales tour to Argentina and New Zealand. This is the man who was in charge of New South Wales in 1991. Future World Cup winning coach, Rod McQueen. So in 91, um, we sort of tried to get a more professional approach for the, um, for the for Waratahs. Uh, we went over to Argentina earlier on. It was a World Cup year, so it was very important for them to do well. And so the goal was obviously to get as many players into the Australian side as we could. Um, and I think a lot of the things that we did uh, transformed over the Wallabies, a lot of the background moves that we, we were working that was and that was what it was all about I suppose being able to contribute and of course um, some of the good backs from Queensland you know made a big difference in, in finishing off as well so uh, all in all I think that was uh, that side was always going to was always going to do well. Anyone that has been around long enough in Australian rugby will know that Australian rugby has usually been strong when Queensland rugby is strong why is that so? So the funny thing started to happen in the 80s, which is Queensland and New South Wales started to play as provinces pretty much before everyone else in the world did. So I think in 84, 85, Queensland played like 20, 30 games for Queensland in all sorts of different places. And so there was this increase in the number of domestic games. Queensland rugby, led by the great Bob Templeton, did indeed take the state to an unprecedented dominance over New South Wales bucking a trend that had been in existence for most of the 20th century. If you look at old playing schedules, sure enough, Queensland from the mid-1970s would play about twice as much rugby as New South Wales did, ensuring that Queenslanders had more game time and more shared experience between players. 
The most extreme example of this is Tim Horan and Jason Little. Two young Queensland kids that would play together from the age of 12 and then eventually become the centre pairing in that 1991 World Cup winning final. This is fellow Queenslander and Wallaby captain and fly half, Michael Liner. You know, you mentioned uh, the Tim and Jason playing together from schoolboys. You know, there were some um, people that I would play with at club level as well um, and then go and play for Queensland and Australia all the way through. Does Australian rugby and the Wallabies owe its dominance in the 1980s and 1990s to the rise of its provincial teams? Is it possible that the increased competitiveness of these teams and the tightness of bonds between these players and indeed mates underpin the success the Wallabies enjoyed during that golden era? This is Wallaby captain of that time, John Eels, a most decorated captain of all. In a previous interview, when I spoke to him about his thoughts on Super Rugby, I think it's uh, the old rivalries between Queensland and New South Wales were, were so important in the game because players got used to really building for something that was special. So they got used to playing for something that meant so much. And Super Rugby was very much like that as well. Like it was that layer on top of it. It was the international layer on top of that domestic rivalry. So you got used to, to performing under pressure in big games, which was such a great preparation for test matches. Now, the player drain, the brain drain, is, you cannot underestimate how, how damaging that has been. So you've got that, that dynamic, which I think a lot of people don't recognise, so keeping our talent is, is not easy uh, from that respect. And it does, it does hurt the Wallabies, because you don't have same groups of people developing great combinations playing provincial rugby together and then just stepping up to the Wallabies. Ben and I are no longer sitting together. We're standing up at a whiteboard and he's drawing a graph that represents the points percentage of each rugby nation from the last 40 years. So this is Australian rugby over the past 1980 performance wise against the other top seven countries in the world, so the five nations, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, um, and New Zealand and South Africa. And we've basically had three peak points. 1984, Alan Jones, Ella Brothers, 1991, the World Cup into 1992, and then 1999 in the build-ups instead of 03 World Cup. And obviously the most stable kind of position was around this. I know this is a podcast, so please humour me. But what Ben has drawn up on this whiteboard are a bunch of lines that show that in the 1990s, quite predictably, the Southern Hemisphere teams of Australia, South Africa, and especially New Zealand, were far higher in points percentage than that of their Northern Hemisphere rivals. And understandably so, this was a massive period of Southern Hemisphere dominance. The All Blacks in black, in 87, they were actually off the chart. South Africa comes in, Wins in 95, dips badly when the Rand was at like 21 to the pound. Um, interestingly, one of the things I was kind of interested in is that by 07 it was better. The Rand actually, I think, helped them keep a lot of the players in South Africa. 07, they won the World Cup. From around 2005, the points percentage of all these teams starts to group as professionalism settles within all the Tier 1 countries and scores between countries get much closer. 
and and all of these three countries have been doing this. Now the question is, why have all three countries been dropping away at the same time? So opposite to that, there was really no professional rugby other than France and England sort of through the late 90s. But then in the early 2000s, the Pro 14 came along and the Irish were the first ones to reap the dividends of it. If we take by the same colour, the Welsh started off with nine teams. It wasn't until about 04 that they went to a 14 model. They themselves improved. And then the Scottish started at three. They went to a two team model. But the, the other thing with this is they start to get very contractually stable clubs. So you put a team into a comp, takes a while then the players then playing together. Once you get them more contractually stable, they tend to start producing talent at a greater speed. And so the Scottish then started to improve um, to, towards the back end after about 2015, they started to push the All Blacks. They didn't win the Six Nations, but they were much more competitive, much more defensively competitive. Despite their success, the gap with New Zealand and the rest of the world has been closing. South Africa have had a roller coaster dip in performance, but are relatively strong. While Australia and the Wallabies, that points percentage against the other top seven teams has been on a consistent decline since 2003. In fact, by 2020, the Wallabies points percentage has been surpassed by all of those countries, including the Celtic nations of Wales, Ireland and Scotland. Everyone now is basically meeting in the middle. England, everyone is now really in this quite small gap. There's a really much smaller differential between all the teams in the world. The, the only thing that I think would, means that we accelerated is that we basically went from a 1996 uh, three-term model to four, to five, to foreign. And each of those decisions, it, it's, it has an impact, but it just keeps having an impact because you've got this residual understanding. So Nathan Sharp comes to the force, but then when he goes back to play for Australia, he still knows all the Reds players, but then he doesn't know the next generation. So it actually, it has a lag for each decision you make. It's about a nine year lag where it keeps messing with you. We're now starting to see post four, post five back to four, um, we've, we, have, we're, we are accelerating less on a downward, <laughs> downward, downward cycle. Um, but, it's, but it's hard because what we actually also need to have is we need to have more contractually stable teams. So in the 90s, the average I think was 91% TWI, which is the level of stability of the clubs. For all three Australian teams, four Australian teams now, I think the average is about 52%. The Teamwork Index. This unique data-driven figure that has been carefully developed by Gainline Analytics through years of evidence-based research and a data science that is closely followed by one of the best rugby clubs in the world, as we heard earlier from the Crusaders head coach, Scott Robertson. It's, it's, it's team cohesion, it's actually is a term called teamwork index, which um, the amount of times people have played together, so the combinations. So the teamwork index and the amount of time you played together, not just on the field, but you know, we're trained off the field now as well. And then you go to test rugby, the next level becomes innate, the, the understanding, and that's what you're talking about. In the 90s, the average I think was 91% TWI, which is the level of stability of the clubs. For all three Australian teams, four Australian teams now, I think the average is about 52%. This figure, as measured for Australia's professional teams, has gone down by 40% since the Wallabies were last the number one team 
back in 1999. The Oxford Dictionary defines cohesion as the action or fact of forming a united whole. In a physics context, it's defined as the sticking together of particles of the same substance. Neither of these definitions outline the consequence of this action, but when applied to numerous sporting contexts, the influence of cohesion is undeniable. Just how did a country like Australia, with a small player pool of rugby players, in a nation where the sport is at best third in show, suddenly turned the tide against 80 years of domination by the All Blacks, Springboks and European teams to become the best team in the world. How does a rugby nation with a smaller player pool overcome a larger nation like England to win a Rugby World Cup on foreign soil? Was Australia benefiting by having a sport prosper through a more narrow corridor of schools and clubs that kept talented players together to enable them to create an elite environment? And if that is true, did we unravel this perfect system? Did Australian rugby not understand the talent factory that had evolved through circumstance rather than luck? Perhaps we didn't properly see the consequences of expansion at the super rugby level. This is from my interview with John O'Neill, the former CEO of the ARU. This discussion, I should say, was had before some of my revelations and findings in talking with Ben Darwin. To the point which now we have a lot, as you said, a lot more players to choose from, but a lot more Wallaby teams that are made up of players from the different five franchises, and whether or not that conversely could be a reason why there's not as much consistency and um, familiarity with players. Have you ever sort of, has that ever been thought about at a, at a government's level? Oh, look, I think that's, that's, um, that's nonsense. Um, you know, the, the, the decline in the fortunes of Australian rugby started um, in, you know, 04. And and you know to, to blame it on the arrival of the force, and then later on the arrival the arrival of the rebels. Oh, that we spread the we spread the Vegemite too thinly. Um, it doesn't it doesn't wash, you know, and it ignores the, uh, the vision and it, it ignores the fact you've got to take a longer longer term perspective. I mean, the junior path the pathways in Perth. You know, grew exponentially. So over time, more talent would have, you know, percolated to the top from, and the same thing would have ha- would have happened in in, in Melbourne over time. But okay, there there would have been a, you know a whole lot of um, you know transfer of players out of the New South Wales Queensland strongholds, and and with the benefit of hindsight, rugby. In, in, I'll admit to plenty of mistakes. We should have brought a draft in, and and we should have provided a genuine subsidy for the Western Force. I wasn't here at the time, but there should have been a subsidy for the Western Force in those early days, and we should have implemented a draft, you know, to spread the talent around, uh, you know, wisely. Very few people talk about Australia's rugby expansion as being a negative. 
That's because as we learnt from the Western Forces Act in 2017, it brings about very difficult and painful outcomes. However, one person has been consistently open about his rejection of expansion, and that is a former Brumbies and Wallabies coach, who is now the current head coach of the England rugby team, Mr Eddie Jones. This is Jones speaking to reporters in 2018, just after his England team had defeated Australia at Twickenham. Yeah, you can criticise a coach, but if your system's not right, then you've got to have a look at the system. So if I was involved in Australian rugby and I'm not, I'd help them understand what, how they've got to change their system. Because you can't have two of your biggest provinces bankrupt and still having all the control in the game. And we've seen with Ireland and New Zealand, and particularly Ireland, that if you have a centralised system for, for a small player pool, you can, be a, you can be a very good team and consistent. And Australia doesn't have that, and, and that's what they need to have. So that's a, that advice is for free. What level of engagement have you and your company had with Rugby Australia on the sorts of things that you've discovered? Um, it's been limited. We, we've had some conversations early on in the piece. Um, we, were, we could see some things coming um, and that's kind of a difficult conversation to be able to have. And I think that the difficulty most people always have in their jobs is, yes, I can understand that, but I've got to deal with this right now. I've got to deal with a commercial reality. I've got to deal with the decisions I have in front of me. We've done some work for the Australian provinces at a, at a, at a, like a, a lower down level, a sort of directorship level. But the number one thing we keep saying is, whatever's happening at the top, whatever they've got permission to do, will filter down. So if you're a board member and you say, we've got to win this year, guys, we must win because we've got to get crowds. That's a worry, that's a concern. It's got to be about how are we going to build a championship team? How are we going to be successful? How long is it going to take? What are the resources we need to do? If we try to buy this year, what is it going to happen to us negatively? And that's, that happens all the time in sport. People make decisions to win today that hurts tomorrow. And, you know, I, th I think that everybody in Australian rugby is trying to make it better individually. But the hard part is trying to understand what is actually going to hinder, you know, what answer, what answer is not necessarily going to help, but actually take us in a different direction. And, and that I don't think necessarily has always been understood. Some of you will be listening and might be like I was when I began to examine what had happened to Australian rugby through the lens of cohesion. Gobsmacked, confused, enlightened, and ultimately full of even more questions. Some of you will have heard this all before and might deem it pseudoscience, thinking that these outcomes and patterns are more random and based on the bounce of the ball. And furthermore, that the demise of Australia's on-field performance in the last two decades is down to some other factors. I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I'll ask you to point me to another argument that is as detailed, concise, logical, and more importantly, backed up by data in the same way that a company like Gainline Analytics have developed over a number of years. It is, after all, a company founded by former Wallaby and rugby analyst who experienced firsthand the environment upon which much of their research is based and who to this day continue to consult to sporting clubs, teams and businesses all around the world. This is the end of part one. I want to ask you the listener to do two things. Firstly, 
Listen to other interviews that have been given by Ben Darwin and Simon Strawn about cohesion analytics. They have been openly sharing these findings and conclusions for some time now. Always happy to talk to anyone who will listen. Their concepts can sometimes be hard to grasp the first time you hear them, but gradually you start to understand the significance of what these conclusions mean. It may also change the way you view many sports, if not rugby. Secondly, I want to hear from you, as we're going to pick up on this subject in a second episode and continue to examine the evidence. What questions do you have? What do you think of today's episode and the information that has been presented? Does it gel with your take on Australian rugby, or do you strongly disagree? And if so, why? I'm keen to hear from as many people as possible and get your take on the influence of cohesion and shared experiences, perhaps even drawing from your own circumstances. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant. Music from this episode is by Ryan Papahatsis and Brad Vanderlucht from Fade Out Audio and will feature in the upcoming film. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.